Welcome to Real Decarbonization, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. In this series of mini pods, I speak to leaders in and around the oil and gas industry to accompany my new book, Real Decarbonization, how oil and gas companies are seizing the low carbon future. And today I speak to a guest who you have heard before. It's always a pleasure to speak with Alan Armstrong, president and CEO of Williams. Alan's background is so interesting because he got his bachelor's degree in civil engineering at the University of Oklahoma. And he started his career at Williams in 1986 as an engineer. So I imagine that he climbed the ladder through the ranks before becoming CEO in 2011. He serves on many boards, including the American Petroleum Institute, the Energy Infrastructure Council, and the Williams Foundation. I have the pleasure of serving on the National Petroleum Council and advisory board to the Secretary of Energy with Alan, who is vice chair. You can learn more about Alan's biography in our show notes. I hope you enjoy my conversation today with Alan Armstrong. Alan Armstrong, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me on the Real Decarbonization Podcast. Thank you, Tish. I'm glad to be here and always really do look forward to get a chance to talk to you about a lot of important issues. So excited about the conversation today. Thank you. So Real Decarbonization is all about translating aspiration into action. And you and I have had over the years, some really interesting conversations that are now more in focus. Around the globe, we see this renewed attention on energy security, energy diplomacy, and yet we have this overwhelming expectation that our companies are also decarbonizing. How do you think about this as an industry leader, reconciling these seemingly competingly priorities for our industry? I actually think it's good for our industry because we have to remember that whatever we do needs to be sustainable. And by that, I mean, it has a lot of different attributes that it has to meet. And one of those, of course, is that it's affordable, it's abundant. So said another way, we can't just, unfortunately, don't have the the luxury of just choosing any solutions, they have to be scalable, affordable. And so the word sustainable, a lot of people pin with anything related to ESG, but really the word sustainable came out first about making sure that it was long-term. So is the governance of a company, is it set up for the long-term? Are the social attributes within the way a company is being run sustainable as demographics change? And on the environmental front, is it sustainable? Is it going to be something that we will tolerate socially for the long haul? And so I actually think it was a very important learning for us all to take in to think about the fact that it truly our solutions also have to be economic otherwise they won't stick around so if you think about if the u.s had the highest priced energy in the world because we abandoned that attribute we would suddenly be dependent on the rest of the world for all of our industrial production and all the energy because we would say well if it's anything related to fossil fuels we're not going to have anything to do with it. 
And that would just wind up basically exporting all of our heavy industry to countries that would not perhaps care so much about that. So I would just say, I think it's really important that we've gotten the attributes of being both affordable and and long-term sustainable on the radar screen as we think about what it's really going to take to decarbonize over the long term. Yeah, there's a couple of threads in there I'd love to pick up on. And the first one is this idea of sustainable. In interviewing you and and Chad Zamorin for the book, one of the things I loved about what informed the Williams perspective is a company that's been around 100 years looking to the next 100 years. It's a very shocking way to reimagine this paradigm instead of sort of these trite expectations, get off fossil fuels now, this idea of a sustainable business for the next 100 years. And I think Williams has really taken some bold steps, leadership steps on behalf of your company, but also that really do set a pace for the industry around decarbonizing. And I imagine it's harder than it looks. So I'm wondering, Alan, if you could talk a little bit about the challenges and the opportunities that you're seeing as you have uh, spent now a couple of years embarking on, on this path. Yeah, I think, you know, that's pretty clear in my mind where some of the challenges are coming right now, because if we were left with this big, I think really exciting challenge, providing adequate affordable energy at the same time, decarbonizing, that was, you know, the limit of our challenge. I think there are all kinds of ways that we could get here, both in the short term and then in the long term. And I think we have to pursue both paths. We can't wait around 20 years for new technology to get after it in reducing carbon on the one hand. And on the other hand, relying on sources that will continue to provide carbon for the long haul while new technology comes along is not feasible either. So we really got to take it on from both angles. So I think the, you know, the big challenge in my mind is actually come from two things. One, the labeling that is going on in the industry today and said another way, if we just said, look, we don't care where you came from or what labels somebody's put on you. We just care, can you reduce carbon from where it is today? That we can do. In fact, we are doing that and we can do that very effectively. So the labeling of, well, if it's fossil fuels, you don't get to play, you don't get to contribute to decarbonizing because you've been associated with fossil fuels in the past or it is your business today and therefore you can't play in the role of decarbonization. That labeling that is going on right now is really stopping, I think, some of the very best short-term opportunities that we have for reducing carbon. And the second part of that, so that's the first big challenge. The second part of that is along with that now, a lot of subsidies that are not really very efficient subsidies at trying to reduce carbon that are somewhat politically correct, but not all that effective at doing it and certainly not sustainable. Said another way, they, they really wouldn't be pursued if it wasn't for the fact of just out and out subsidies in the form of tax. So I'm worried that as we pick winners and losers through tax subsidies, 
we will put a lot of investment into places that are not necessarily the best places that the market could find to invest. And so those really are some of the biggest challenges in my mind today is one, the labeling and two, the self-selection, if you will, by what's politically correct to reduce emissions, even though we don't have the resources, a lot of cases we don't have the resources and it's probably not the very best place to put our money. Yeah, you hit on something that did drive my work behind real decarbonization, and that is this double entendre. Within the industry, it's about translating our aspirations into action. But outside, in the general world, it's about if you're really committed to decarbonizing, then we've got to have all the tools in the toolbox. And I completely agree, Alan, that this anthropomorphizing of energy, like some energy is good and some is evil. In fact, it's just molecules <laughs> that if we could really help transcend some of these dialogue limitations, then we have so many more tools in the toolbox and so much more scale with our industry. And because Williams has been getting after it, even since I interviewed you and Chad earlier in the year for the book, I think it, it gives some real examples about how natural gas companies can be part of addressing climate and the realistic, pragmatic, multi-decade demand we're going to have for natural gas. Can you talk a little bit about some of the announcements that you all been making and things you're looking to do? Yeah, sure. So a lot of ours has been centered one around being able to show very credible and unassailable data around the emissions associated with both the production of and the transport and the infrastructure required to get natural gas delivered. And, and believe me, there is so much opportunity in reduction, the greenhouse gas emissions reduction, that's pretty easy along those lines. We've just never been required to do it. And so a couple of things that have been most important for us is one, when we started looking at how people were recording emissions associated with production, we saw it and we thought, wow, that is not going to stand up in the court of public opinion, especially in a heavily scrutinized industry the way we're going to have. So we really need to develop more credible third party and comprehensive approach to emissions associated with our industry. And so one of the investments that we made kind of early on and got aligned with is with a group called Context Labs. And this is really technology that is designed to verify emission profiles across the natural gas value chain, really all the way from the point of production, as I said, all the way to the point of end use. And it uses a combination of satellites, operational data, local sensors, and then blockchain technology to be able to track and allocate the emission sources to the appropriate parties. And so we are really working hard to take this all the way across our major assets right now and are really excited about the way some of our customers are taking hold of that, both on the production side where people are wanting to be able to have their gas certified and the emissions certified on the one hand. And on the other hand, at the market end, we are seeing people willing to pay a premium now, which you know we hadn't seen previously. And so that's coming from some of our large utility customers. 
And so we're really excited about the way that is coming together. And I think it's a perfect example of making a sustainable investment where you actually have paying customers that are willing to pay for those services and it doesn't require a subsidy to make that work. So that's one area that has really, it's very complex, sounds really easy. It is extremely complex to be able to track gas production all the way from the point it's produced, all the way through the various paths that it can take to the point of delivery and be able to have third-party verification of those emissions. And I think that's a great, you know, if you don't have that, if you don't have kind of a basis and a very solid foundation on which to build emissions reductions, then it just becomes kind of a liar's poker. You know, it's not going to be seen as credible and it would really damage, I think, the credibility of our industry. And so we really wanted to early on set up a very credible foundation for that piece of our business. And we're doing that very well. We also have invested in a company called Aurora Hydrogen. And this is through our corporate venture capital group. And we spend about $50 million a year in our corporate venture capital group. And Aurora Hydrogen is developing technology that will use microwave energy to convert natural gas to hydrogen and therefore producing zero CO2 emissions. And of course, along with that, we have a partnership with the University of Wyoming where we're conducting a feasibility study to evaluate the creation of a hydrogen hub up near operations in southwestern Wyoming around Wamsutter area, and that would really be positioned to serve demand for hydrogens in markets up in the northwest U.S. So that one's early on, but we're excited about investing some of the new technology. That's not a near-term solution. It's a longer-term solution, but we're excited to be invested in that. And then finally, as well within our corporate venture capital group, Atlantis, which is a developer of high-precision miniaturized satellites. And they combine that with cameras that does a very comprehensive degree of uh, greenhouse gas monitoring. So, so those are some areas that we're investing in. But I would tell you, if we really were doing a, an efficiency for what dollars we're spending to reduce our carbon footprint, it would probably be some of our op boring, you know, not sexy, not going to, you know, get written up in the Wall Street operating practices of reducing emissions around our operations by eliminating venting around our systems, taking out systems that we've seen repeatedly show up with leaks, methane leaks, some of our equipment that doesn't leak all the time, but through our continuing monitoring of it, we're finding what's reliable and what's not reliable from an emissions standpoint. So if you really got down to like, where's the best bang for your buck? It's really boring stuff that is, but is dramatically reducing emissions around our system. And we're actually incenting our part of our bonus is driven off of our methane emissions across the company every year. And so that has really gotten people, you know, turning wrenches in the right spots to reduce emissions. Wow, you really covered a lot of ground there with the investments you're making. And there's a few points I 
I just want to put an exclamation point on. One is is this idea that reducing carbon footprint is really actually boring, non-sexy stuff that the industry will never get credit for, but we're going to do anyway. <laughs> I think that that's just so important, especially as the conversations around hydrogen are pivoting to, well, what about our system? Will our system be able to incorporate hydrogen? And we, we have to be able to demonstrate our capability to reduce methane emissions. So I, I love that you're doing that. And then the Context Lab partnership is so important because the world's going to want, I think, the best molecules that come from North America. And we're going to have to demonstrate in a very verifiable and transparent way that we do, in fact, have the most sustainable molecules on the planet and that Europe and Asia can import those molecules with confidence. So I just love the work that you all are doing there. And I got to visit a Williams facility just last month, and I can attest to the passion of the employees on site and pride in the operations and the continual improvements underway. It was really encouraging. So I want to ask you a follow-up question from my site visit, Alan, which is I always expect when I'm working with oil and gas companies, that there's going to be just some understandable resistance within the workforce because climate and oil and gas has gotten so politically polarized. Sometimes there's resistance to this work. Sometimes there's insistence or an expectation from employees. What do you get from your workforce, both within and within your company and within your influence as a, an industry leader? What do you think we can learn or understand about what the workforce expects from us in this space? Well, it's a great question. And I would say that obviously there's some people have, who have a real affinity to kind of taking on the new and you know, latest challenges. And there's other people that look at it with skepticism and say, man, we were doing just fine the way we were. You know, why are we having to take on all this new? Stuff. So you get you certainly get a mix of that. I am very fortunate, though, from a Williams perspective that really through our leadership and our management team, there's pretty strong support for doing things the right way. And I think people see that reducing emissions from our industry and being a leader on that front is something they can really get in line with and help support. So I would say generally. It has been, if I had to think about it in balance, there's always going to be, you know, some that have more affinity than others, but I would say in balance, it's probably been more of a positive factor for our workforce than a negative factor because people see it as a challenge and they think about Williams as a company that's going to take on those issues and going to be a leader. So I would say it's been kind of a net positive for us. I think that the negative side goes back to the labeling. When I go up and I talk to our employees, for instance, up in the New York and New Jersey area, you know, they have people that treat them as second-class citizens because they work in the fossil fuel industry. You know, that's really underappreciated. You know, those, those same people that have a pretty heavy carbon footprint life of their own you know, and then want to take that out on on people that are doing their job every day and trying to do their job well. So I would say that the negative side kind of comes from outside external influence in areas where where it's been demonized and not very well understood. 
So that's the side I, you know, really is disappointing for me because again, this is back to the labeling issue where, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. So that's the part that bothers me a bit. Yeah. That gets me hot under the collar too, Alan. There's nothing. So, so for all of our listeners, I think you can just have extraordinary pride in how much we are excited about the way our our industries are leading in all these challenges. I I totally agree. I want our our industry to feel nothing but optimism, pride, and a sense of place in a quickly changing world. So Alan, because we're talking about your feelings, I want to ask you a little bit more about you. When you and I started talking, it was just, you know, the early days of lockdown and life has changed so much from the with the war in Ukraine to, you know, prices of energy have gone from, you know, the bottom of the barrel skyrocketed back, you know, somewhere where we can imagine you know, a challenging energy future for the world uh, as far as uh, price and supply goes. And here you are leading a company (laughs) who's setting its course for the next hundred years. How are you changing your leadership style? In what ways have you grown or changed the way that you present as a leader to your company and to the industry? Yeah, well, you know, I was contemplating that this weekend, like one of my daughters was grilling me about kind of what I thought about the future of the industry. And I thought, you know, I have spent a lot more time learning in the last couple of years, which I really, I mean, really is exciting to me to, you know, our industry has not changed all that much over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, really, in terms of what we do from basic blocking and tackling standpoint. Sure, we brought on new technologies, but really compared to a lot of industries, it hasn't changed that much. And so this has been a real opportunity to kind of, you know, stretch my learning capabilities about new technologies, about how to really measure carbon efficiency. That's been really good for me personally. And by the way, and I think that also charges the whole organization when there's a challenge out in front of us. And I think that's a really positive thing for an organization. And then secondly, though, I spent a lot more time advocating. Evidently, I'm not very good at that because it does, we've made a lot of progress on that front, but, but I do spend a whole lot more time advocating, particularly with kind of the, the middle and kind of the moderate Democrats that are political leaders, trying to educate them on the amount of opportunity that we have to reduce emissions with the use of natural gas and with just how we improve the efficiency of our our basic operations today. You know, I don't like for them to then conclude that, well, you're just here just to defend your industry. No, I'm here because it is clearly one of the most powerful tools that we have in the short term. It is clearly one of the most powerful tools we have to reduce emissions and why in the world as the U.S. where we have an abundant resource and we have the know-how to do it, why we wouldn't take advantage of that both for the U.S. and for the world is kind of beyond me. And so that advocating, I think, has become you know more and more important. And I certainly need to learn to get better at that because there's such a great story to be told there. Mm. Being on this continuous learning curve is, it's actually so 
invigorating. Probably both you and I have had to have some cursory level of blockchain (laughs) to, to engage in these conversations about transparency. And then getting out there, I really do appreciate that you have this emphasis on engaging with those that, that prioritize climate, but haven't yet prioritized what I would call real decarbonization, which is inclusive of all the solutions. I often end up talking to our industry about, yeah, the public, they're skeptical and they will say that we're just defending our the status quo or defending the past. And that's okay. We should just keep doing it anyway, because it, I do think that our work and our efforts and our investments and the kind of things you've described, Alan, are going to ultimately be central to these solutions and governing is challenging. And and the people who are going to lead us into the energy future are going to be people who ultimately have to be extremely pragmatic. So just one final question for you, Alan, what makes you confident that the people and resources in our industry uh, can succeed in being leaders in this idea of real decarbonization? I have great optimism about the capabilities of our industry. If you think about a collection of technical people that are used to solving problems at scale, it's really hard to find organizations that are geared to do that more than we have in the energy industry today. I just can't think of a better you know, collection of people and organization and capabilities. I, I know you know, in your book, there was some skepticism by a professor in California on that issue. And I, you know, I respect that. I think, you know, it's not a ridiculous perspective for him to be offering there by any stretch of the imagination. But I think what is missing is the scale that is going to be required to bring about emissions reductions and that simple technologies that require a lot of different resources are not necessarily the answer for us and we're going to have to learn to do it at scale and our industry you know really knows how to do that i think we've got a new generation in the organization that's excited about it you know when we polled in areas that are more democratic leaning areas when we poll the younger generation around natural gas they are very interested in learning. They have not written it off. They are pretty open-minded to it. And when presented with a set of facts, they absorb that pretty quickly. So I think you could say that the Achilles heel for our industry would be kind of the public perception. But I've been encouraged to see, as we've done polling, to see how movable that group is with good, solid facts. So I'm excited about what our industry can offer. And I don't think that the battle has been lost by any stretch of imagination on the public perception issue. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Most people's feelings about energy and climate are so lightly held that the opportunity for us to engage in these kind of authentic ways and demonstrate the contributions we're making to energy security, geopolitics, addressing climate, they're just not going to be deniable. (laughs) So I couldn't agree more. Alan, it's always a joy and a pleasure to get to talk to you and learn from you. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you, Tisha. Always my pleasure. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Alan for joining me. 
you know what was the most interesting? Well, there are a lot of interesting things, but the most surprising thing for me was I didn't know you could make hydrogen from natural gas with microwaves and not have CO2. So I thought I did all my prep work for this podcast, but I got a little more studying to do because that's pretty interesting and cool. I like to know what you found insightful from today's podcast. Take a moment and rate if you like what you're hearing. You can learn more about my book at realdecarbonization.com and our work at adamantine at energythinks.com. I'd like to say a special thank you to Adon Rubio for making the Real Decarbonization podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.